Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Calderwood set up the charity Climbing Out after a life-changing injury. The charity runs outdoor activity programs aimed at rebuilding confidence and self-esteem amongst young people. Those who have faced life-changing illness or injury or trauma, Calder is a fascinating human being. She's a former GB para-canoe athlete, easy for me to say, but she's turned her focus to helping children and young people. Um, she's rode the Atlantic. She's overcome huge challenges in her life um, around sport and, and disability. Um, I think you're going to really like her. Calder and I have known each other for a few years now. We came across each other uh, in London when Calder was doing some fantastic connecting with people and raising funds for her charity. Um, Calder, welcome. Thank you. Good, good to chat to you, Mark. Good to chat to you too. Um, I think we've got some chirping birds in the background, which I love because that means <laughs> they all add to the atmosphere. <laughs> Absolutely, summer's arrived in the UK, and. Yep. Um, I'm sitting in New Zealand and uh, we're not letting 12,000 miles get between us. Um, I, the main real focus for me of this podcast is to really get to that kind of climbing out story, which is the charity you started, UK charity you started, uh, what feels like 10 years ago now, would that be right? Yeah, it is. It was 2010 that that we first got it off the ground. So um, it was going to be a big year for us being our 10th anniversary. Unfortunately, COVID-19 put a bit of a spanner in the works with that. But uh, we're just going to have a big year next year instead now. But uh, yeah, Yeah. 10 years years old. Fantastic. And um, to get to that story, there's there's quite a lot to get through because, Cowdy, you've been on an incredible journey uh, personally. And um, what really has always struck me with you is that you have, you know, you've experienced real disappointment in life. And I think that disappointment has held you back at times, but actually your incredible ability to overcome the disappointment. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people going through disappointment at the moment and uh, some people are overcoming it and some people are not. So I think that's another part of your story I really want to uncover um, just to focus on, like, there's a list, a list of so many things that you've done, which I was just going <laughs> to paraphrase for a second. Like, you've been a great, you've re- represented Great Britain as a para canoeist yeah. at the World Cup, the champ, um, World Championship. You've unsupported solo row across the Atlantic. Yeah. You have, uh, you've been a netballer at a national level. You've ridden horses. Um, massive uh sporting focus in your life and I know that um you know in 2002 you you suffered a serious leg injury and um that held you back for a number of years but actually you turned that into a huge positive do you mind if we just kind of go right back to the the start go back to youth a bit and just look at how you grew up um and where you grew up and then just talk about the the journey that you've been on absolutely yeah no problem at all so yeah, I guess um, as a child, sport was my life. You know, it was everything uh, that mattered to me. I wasn't particularly academic, um, but I loved my sport, and it, it very much defined who I was and the, the person I wanted to be. Um, I played netball at a national le- level as a 
as a teenager um but my real passion was was with horses um my total dream was to represent my country and to ride at the olympics um didn't come from a particularly wealthy family so we couldn't afford a horse which is quite a setback if you want to be an international event rider um but my, my when I got to 16 my parents thought I was going to to fail all my GCSEs because I was spending too much time hanging around at the local riding school um so they did a bit of bribery and said if I got nine A's um they would would allow me to get a horse um I didn't get nine A's, but they had allowed me to make some sort of financial contribution for every A I didn't get. Um, and I ended up with my first horse at 16. And that really was the start of my journey um, around my, my kind of eventing career and, and goal. And whereabouts are you growing up? Uh, so initially I was born in Kent uh, down south we moved up to Northumberland my my mum was from up that area so we moved up there when I was 10 Um, and yeah you know up north is great lots of hills lots of uh, moorland and you know again I've always been outdoors adventurous so I would just you know put a sandwich in a rucksack and get my dog and take off for the day and lots of happy memories of of good days out on the hills up there and and do you recognize kind of you know the sort of your determined streak to um overcome you know stuff in life do you do you look back then and think that you were quite a robust kid and that you could deal with you know things that came your way back then or does it something that evolve later um, no, I think actually, you know, my parents weren't hugely supportive, largely because they didn't get sport. Um, you, you know, they were they were academic, they were musical, they weren't big sport advocates. Um, they didn't really approve of me doing horses. Um, and so from being very young, I had to really work out how to do it myself. And I'll actually be forever grateful to my parents for kind of installing that in me um so I can always remember when I when I had um this first horse you know it was three miles up to the stables so I would get up at 5 30 every morning and walk up the three miles there do the horse walk three miles back before school I'd walk back up again every night do the horse walk back you know and and I really think from a young age that just installed in me um, this approach of take responsibility and make it work. Do what you've got to do to make it work. And and I love that. I, I love that um, kind of attitude now. And it's really helped me. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And so in 2002 and you had your serious leg injury, do you mind just describing that and, and just sort of outlining how old you were and, and kind of what the impact was? On, yeah. On your life. yeah so um by that point I'd set up my own business with the horses I was running a yard um had about 25 horses in for, for other people that I was training and riding um and then I was out haying the horses early one morning and a bale of haylage uh there are big square bales weigh about a ton fell off the top of the stack and and crushed me underneath um didn't touch my leg it actually landed on the top of my head and compressed everything and caused a compound fracture and dislocation um to my left ankle so to put it in layman's terms basically my foot was on right angles to my leg um and because my foot wasn't there anymore the weight of the bale then shattered the bottom of my leg um so initially it looked like I was I was going to lose uh my lower leg 
they they did several operations managed to save my leg but I had kind of nine months then of physio and and surgery um and after nine months they kind of sent me home as physically fixed as I was going to be um the challenge for me was that that left me unable to run um so you know suddenly I couldn't play the sports that I loved I couldn't be the person I wanted to be um but I couldn't accept that so I kept on trying to be the same person and then in my eyes failing so over what period that's because I read I read that and um an interview you gave and you talked about you spent many years trying to be the person you were yeah. and failing yeah. and how when you look back now because you know hindsight's a great thing how long do you think that sort of trying to be the person you were physically um it would it was an eight-year period and and the reason why I can say it was sort of that that length of time and it actually went on longer than that but it was after eight years that I think I started to change was I got to the point that I realized I needed to do something you know and so in 2010 uh, I get mixed up with dates sometimes 2010 I decided to climb Kilimanjaro um I knew I needed a challenge didn't tell them about my leg because I didn't want them to say no um and it was when I did Killy that I started to change my attitude towards my leg. And I came back from there, decided to, to focus more on what I could do rather than what I couldn't. Um, and I began retraining as an outdoor instructor. And that really was the start of my journey um, that then took another kind of seven years really to actually happen. But it was the start in me starting to change how I felt about my leg and how I felt about life post-injury I guess yeah 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 and and sort of you know non non-sporting calder so you know I can't imagine it but calder resting or or calder just sitting back and and <laughs> and that time we so through those years when you know you were struggling with the injury were you generally happy in life and 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 you know kind of or or had had that been a bit of a struggle as well um, it was a struggle, but what I always say is it wasn't that I was unhappy. You, you know, if anyone had asked me at the time, I would have said, you know, I was still always a, a very sort of jolly kind of person. That's that's always been the way I've been. I think what I would say is I wasn't content. You know, um, I think having now come to terms with my injury and accepting myself for who I am with my injury, now I'm truly happy, you know, and I think back then I was happy on the surface, but underneath, I was still very mixed up about things, you know, Um, and that's where things are like super cool now because it's a very different feeling when you, you feel happy on the inside too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And what's really evident from where I stand is you love setting goals and you love smashing them. Right. So you just you line them up. So and I'm, I summarize some stuff you've done at the beginning. But then I'm sitting here thinking, did I mention like, you know, the, the, the highest mountain in South America? Because you, you, you didn't do just do Kelly, did you? But you, you climbed the highest mountain in South America as well. And I think, yeah. I, I, think I think from my audience, yeah. they could you would you mind just going through the timeline so you you know so you've you're coming out of this period of time when you've you know you've been really held back sort of mentally and physically but you start to set these goals and um including like uh you know you miss uh, gb um sports para sports person 
um, but also yeah. missing out selection. Did, would you just go through the the kind of timeline of stuff and just? Timeline. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, and it. No, no, no. It, you know what? It's great because it's sort of. You know, I always do say like you've got to go on the journey. And if you told me back in 2010 that I would have been a para-athlete or I would have climbed up on Cagwell or I would have um, rode the Atlantic, I'd have told you to stop being so stupid, yeah. you know. But kind of one thing leads on to another and, and that's where I do think it's, it's, it is just a journey, you know. Um, so, yeah, 2010 was Kilimanjaro. Um, I came back from that, began retraining as an outdoor instructor, and that was what led me to, to set up climbing out. But I'm sure we'll talk yeah. about that in a minute. Um, and then it was 2013 when I then got selected uh, as a member of the GB Paracanoe squad. So then my focus for the next three years was was on Rio. So the aim was the Rio Paralympics in 2016. Um, unfortunately, didn't um, manage to get there, just missed out on selection. Um, but then as a result of not being selected for Rio, I ended up being asked to join an adaptive team attempting to climb Aconcagua. So Aconcagua um, was the start of 2017. Um, and that was a, a massive turning point for me in my mental well-being, you know, and how I, I felt about my leg and my injury. Um, and then having come back from, from Aconcagua, that was when I made the decision to do the solo row of the Atlantic. Um, and I started that journey um, and set off in December 2018 um, and then completed that in February 2019 Fantastic. um so yeah that's that's a little journey yeah, <laughs> we you and i met in london uh when you were in full-on i'm gonna do this the physical challenge is i don't you know i can overcome that but i remember at the time you really yeah. um having concerns about the sort of getting to the line in terms of raising the money needed to raise because you you not only yeah. i think you raised 50k for climbing out doing it but then That's how right. much did yep. you raise that and what are the expenses just to get to the line for that yeah so getting to the start line is a budget of about 120,000 um it's a massive massive expense and commitment um but I was adamant that none of that money to get to the start line was going to come out of any donations um towards the charity so that my goal was was that that 120k would come from corporate sponsorship and then any money that was raised through donations and fundraising um, would go directly towards the charity. Um, in, it was a bit close to the line, it, you know, it was sort of two weeks beforehand that I finally got the last bit of corporate sponsorship in that, that meant, yes, I can definitely do this. Um, so that was a bit of a wing yeah. and a prayer. Um, but the support from people was incredible yeah. incredible um so yeah and again I think you know I started that without a bean to my name and I think sometimes people can put up barriers thinking well I can't do it because I've got no backing I've got no connections and and I just kind of went right let's get this yeah. out there yeah um, you're talking at, and just I mean walk. we we had I had whatever you did to these guys like I had people um you know, on my case personally, in terms of, you know, you'd infected them with your enthusiasm. Um, and they were, they were gunning <laughs> down my door uh, when I was at St. James's place. Um, and I, I think, I think your unbelievable positivity slash enthusiasm drive commitment, like 
Um, and they, as business people themselves, I'm thinking of partners of St. James's Place, you know, they kind of picked, they really yeah. bought into that um, part of, part oh, of you. They were so, I mean, they were so unbelievable and I couldn't have done it without the support of people like St. James's mm. Place. Um, but it, it was actually the one thing I was very determined to do was that I would always straight stay true to the values and ethos of the row, which was all about inspiring and motivating people who've been through yeah. trauma and raising awareness about climbing out. That was why I was doing it. And so I was adamant. I'd had a real deal with myself that I would never compromise those values in order to get to the start line or to raise money or to get media coverage or whatever. And I think actually my sort of passion and commitment to those values was what actually worked, you, you know, and I think that was what people bought into because um, it was very, very clear why. I mean, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to row a blooming ocean for God's sake, you know, um, but that was, was kind of the whole reason why I had to do it. And, you know, each day I was rowing for a different young person um, and sharing their stories. So over 75 young people wrote and shared their stories through the row. And when you read some of those stories and, and what they've been through, you know, uh, oh, like you, you couldn't feel more inspired yourself, yeah. you know, because there were some incredible, incredible young people that were, were part of the row. Mm. And did you, like couple of what was like the craziest thing that happened to you on that road because I mean unsupported so you've just uh, to contextualize that you've got literally no support within like like three or four well, miles or how does it how does it sort of work oh god more like try try about a thousand miles oh. <laughs> um yeah so I mean yeah it was an unsupported crossing um there was one support boat it was actually a race so um uh we all kind of left Lagomera in in Tenerife um at the same time but you had crews of five four three two and and there were five solos but I lost sight of of any other boats within the first sort of two three hours of rowing um and didn't see anyone again until i i reached antigua um you've got one support boat covering the whole fleet but the fleet can be up to sort of a thousand miles apart um so yeah the nearest support was probably um as far as that boat goes at least four to five days away um if you got into real trouble, you of course have your Mayday, your, your VHF. Um, and the way that works is that if you got into real trouble, a shout would go out to the nearest shipping vessel um, to come and try and assist in a rescue if it was needed. Um, but when you're a little ocean rowing boat, you don't particularly want to get picked up by um, a big uh, shipping vessel because they do have a tendency to run you over um so it's best avoided if you can and so you're like grabbing some sleep each day like ha uh eating some food like it's you know it's pretty brutal stuff um how many hours of sleep were you getting uh i was getting between four and five hours a night um so my routine would be i'd start rowing at 5 30 in the morning um i'd row through till 11 30 at night um with four 
30 minute breaks through the day so I was rowing about 16 hours a day um and then I would uh, stop at 11 30 I would have a wash I would check my messages and lights out for midnight um and then my alarm would go off at quarter to five again um a lot of rowers didn't do it in that way they would do a, a kind of two hour two hours on two hours on off shift but I just I didn't like that I much preferred the idea of doing a day sleeping even if it was a long day and not much sleep it still helped me a lot to to break it down into one day at a time I mean I can imagine after waking up waking up after sleep and sort of the anxiety as your head lifts out of the cabin to, just to see where you are <laughs> like uh, yeah uh, huge yes. yeah absolutely but, it was always a moment because first thing you would do is you would sit up in the cabin and look at your chart plotter yeah. to see how far off course you'd been blown while you were sleeping. Um, sometimes you got three miles. So the, the most miles I gained while I was sleeping was 11. Um, that was a great morning. So, um, so yeah. Fantastic. And so just, I mean, there's easier ways of raising money, Calder, right? Okay. There's, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I t- I, I, I really... <laughs> talking to you about the inspiration for doing it and and and, and yeah. li- just kind of pivoting and just talking about climbing out and your inspiration behind um founding this charity so as we talked about it's 10 years old um you were the founder uh, and initially i think founder and then on the board like you're were you on the board of trustees initially yeah yes I was, I was initially um so when I first set it up I mean it was so um you know you needed three trustees to become a registered charity um so I kind of you know got two friends involved and um did it myself and for four years I just did it voluntary round round a full-time job um to just get things off the ground and and going um after four years we'd got in a position where the workload was just getting so much I, I couldn't do it properly around a full-time job um so I then um sort of put a proposal forward to that we needed to create a part-time position um I would love that part-time person to be me, but, you know, that was up to the others as trustees. By that point, I think we'd increased our trustees to five. Um, And then once I became employed, um, I stepped down as a trustee because it was then not sort of appropriate for for me to be in that position. Um, Now we've got a board of nine trustees. um, And, and yeah, I went full-time the start of 2018. Yeah, it has grown grown massively now, but it, it has taken a long time and, and a lot of work. Yeah, you know? and so income levels at the moment, annual. Yes, what have to what do you have to raise each year? Uh, our annual budget is about one hundred and seventy thousand. Yeah. Um, so I guess in the scale of charities, we're still a relatively small charity. But going from a charity that's income was about five thousand a year that's still a lot of money to find and and a huge step forward for us so we're running um obviously covid has impacted on us this year we were planning nine programs this year um we're now actually it looks like we're going to get five actually running which i think to come out of a year where there's been a worldwide pandemic and still manage to deliver five programs is a good enough outcome really um and then we'll hit the ground running next year. So two things, really, just to clarify for the listeners what you guys do. So it's it started life as an outdoor adventure or outdoor skills-based experience over a few days. Is that right? And then 
Um, and it was mainly focused on, I thought, children and young people. But I've noticed actually in recent times, it's you've, you know, you're, for example, at the moment, you're seem to be uh, reaching out heavily involved with um, people in the services, like soldiers. Um, just, just describe what the charity does and and how it's evolved yep. would be great. Yeah, so we run five-day outdoor activity programs um, aimed at rebuilding confidence, self-esteem and motivation for people who've been through mental or physical trauma. Um, so really it's about combining all the benefits of outdoor activities um, from the physical activity, being outdoors, stretching boundaries, stepping out of your comfort zone, teamwork, camaraderie, banter, you know, all those things that come hand in hand with, with outdoor activities along with mind management. So uh, all of the instructors that work on the programme are, are qualified life coaches as well as outdoor instructors. But it's all based around my journey, my learnings, I guess, from the journey I've been on. And what I learned was it wasn't actually about managing my injury. It was about managing my mind towards my injury. And, and how I describe it is if you think of mental well-being being like a table and your mental health is the tabletop for a table to work it needs table legs to hold it up but no one told me what those table legs were and you know I see the journey I've been on has really taught me what those table legs are and I've done a lot of work and a lot of research and a lot of experiencing to to suss out those table legs so through the programs, we really share those table legs, but also recognize that everyone needs slightly different table legs. So this is the basic principle, one at each corner to hold up the tabletop, but actually what color is your table leg going to be? What shape is it going to be? How is it going to screw on? So we'll, we'll share the basic principles and then we'll look at how people need to adapt those table legs to fit to their life. And that really is the bit that is the life-changing bit with the programs because it enables people to accept the trauma they've been through and to start to see a new way forwards mm. um which was really sort of the whole reason that I set it up related to the journey that I've yeah, been on yeah you know absolutely um and and you're right yes we have initially our age range was 16 to 30 um Last year, we actually had a lot of people contacting us who were over 30 saying, this is just what I need, but I'm too old. So we ran an over 30s program that went incredibly well. Um, so we decided to introduce a number of programs for those over 30s. Um, and then we started establishing contacts with both the emergency services so police fire and ambulance um and the military so now uh yeah we're supporting them as as well as you know as a result of covid the nhs and frontline staff so it has it's really evolved but you know that's what i think you've got to do to be a good whether it be business or charity um you've got to be dynamic you've got to evolve you've got to be prepared to reflect and change and you know, I'm sure in another two years we'll have evolved again. So it's it's been an incredible journey, but an amazing one. And and I think um, the charity is changing lives and we've got real clarity about how and, and who we're doing that for mm. now. And 
I think, you know, with climbing out uh, and, and charities where they've been founded by someone like yourself with a really strong story and your real inspiration for your, you personally to set up this charity, like very much in your part of, you know, like your shadow or your DNA, how do you, and you know, you try to scale it so it's gone from sort of £5,000 to, you know, heading towards quarter of a million annually and how do, you know, how do you ensure that if Calder can't give it her time mm. or, you know, Calder can't turn mm. up for work, like that's the challenge, I guess, isn't it? To like evolve it so it's not reliant, 100% reliant on you for it to move forward and grow. Um, but not, but not yeah. easy either, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it has been one of the things that we've been very aware of over the last couple of years, really, is at the, mo- at the moment, it is that single point failure. It, you know, um, so we've been looking for, I, I, you're right, in that we aren't just a model, you know, so it's not just about getting someone who can deliver what we do, because for me, it's about having the heart and passion um, and having been through the experience yourself that makes the difference with what Climbing Out does. So I've always said the right person will come along, the right person will come along that we can then sort of train up to be, I, I don't want to say the next me, because that sounds very arrogant, but just so that we're not that single point failure anymore. Um, and actually, uh, someone came through our programs last year, an incredible young woman, um, an amazing story she was I know she won't mind me saying she was held captive for three years um was physically and and mentally abused through that time ended up losing her uh, a large portion of her sight um as a result of what she went through and she is the most dynamic motivated inspiring person you could hope to meet um but that happened as a result of coming on the programme. And so we're now actually putting her through her coaching qualifications um, and she's starting on the programmes this year to shadow my role. So over the next couple of years, we can train her up um, with a view to her being able to, to sort of be there ready to step in as and when needed, um, and which is great, you know, but that's an evolving process in itself. We weren't in a position to do that at the beginning, um, but I think we are now, and that's that's great progress for the charity and and for her as so well. What, what do you think she tapped into that was so significant? So it sounded like it set on a real course for, you know, turning her life around. What what do you think she tapped into in your course? I think, I mean, those table legs that I've talked about are huge because a lot of the time, I think people feel like they have no choice. You know, life has to be like this and actually it sucks. Um, When you actually start to learn a bit about how the brain works and how you can manage it, you start to realise that you have a choice, you know, and it doesn't have to be like that. And this um, young woman really embraced that choice and starting to change the choices she was making and and what's been really interesting is that she struggled through lockdown like a lot of us has but I've, I've done quite a bit of work with her and each time it's just been oh this is where I need to use that tool isn't it and then she's applied the tool and reflected and grown from it um, and that's what's been really outstanding about this person in how she has 
you, you know, it takes time and effort. You have to put the effort in. You you don't get results. You don't get success without putting a bit of graft and hard work in. And and she's been prepared to do that, and she's now getting the results. Yeah. You know, one of my favourite quotes is discipline gives you freedom or you know a version of that um but but yeah those things you do those positive things you do every day um and then also uh, I imagine for her like your you as an inspiration and other people who are climbing out as as well um you know overcoming stuff in life um which is what it's all about I think that's so powerful isn't it when you know if, yeah. If, yeah. Uh, seeing a if you see a pig fly, that pig could probably fly too. It's um, it's something, <laughs> or something along those lines. Um, yeah. And I think that sorry to interrupt, Mark, but you know, I I actually came across a quote after doing the Atlantic that for me sums everything up. Um, and that is. Um, doing things that make you uncomfortable help make you strong the more time you spend being uncomfortable the stronger you become and when I look at my journey when I look at other people's journeys when I look at climbing out you know really that's it I look at my whole journey and I'm so grateful for all the challenges now because that's what's enabled me to grow and learn um, so it's the people that see the challenges as an opportunity to grow and learn, the setbacks as an opportunity to grow and learn. And yes, yes, it's tough when you're in it. We're not saying for a second, like, oh, like, stay positive all the time, because that's just not realistic. Um, but I I realise now how, you know, that whole thing was, my whole journey is what's helped make me strong. Um and I yeah. think I, I completely concur. And um, I think also also not being doomsday or getting overwhelmed by setbacks um, and, and just kind of, you know, feeling them, uh, experiencing them. And then in my favourite word of the whole COVID thing is pivoting uh, to something positive, to doing it something, you know, doing it slightly differently. What what's the... Um, you know, so so you got this burden of, of raising money. You've and I always think with founders of charities, that kind of that vision at the start, the kind of um, inspiration bit is the, is not the easy bit, but that's the bit that comes most naturally. I think that often the challenge is you suddenly wake up a few years in and you go, "How I I've got this huge responsibility. I've start I've created this charity. All these people are relying on me. I've also got to raise, you know." nearly a quarter of a million each year heading towards that mm. um and and actually so that that kind of fundraising bit is it something that you feel burdened by do you know the kind of constant need to talk because people people are hard to get money out of right it's that that fundraising thing's not an easy thing and, yeah. and in terms of being more sustainable how do you find that yeah it, it's a really interesting question and um, one of the one of the kind of quotes phrases sayings that we have with climbing out is it's not about saying I can't it's about saying how can I and I think you're right in that for a long time that fundraising was a, a complete burden and a real stress where's it going to come from um one thing that happened with the Atlantic and and the money that was raised from doing that was we actually invested seven thousand pounds of that money into taking on um someone to help us with funding applications for half a day a week um now actually what happened with that is the seven thousand pounds that we invested in him he actually brought in ninety two thousand pounds for us as a, as a charity so that how can i 
approach you know now we have a really good structure in place for fundraising um this this guy does our funding applications it's proved hugely successful he has the experience and the expertise in that field to write good applications and to know who to approach um but that couldn't happen until we were in a position to do it and and you know that was what the row enabled us to do um and also you know we've now got such evidence of the outcomes that we're achieving um you know we've got so many case studies testimonials um just evidence that when we do funding applications i read them sometimes and go how can this not fail you know it's so clear how we're changing lives so it's becoming less of a stress now um but certainly for the first kind of eight years it was a major stress and i think now you can still never rest easy you, you know um we we can only run the programs as long as the money is in the bank account um so we've constantly got to be delivering and evidencing that there's a demand and that we're achieving results yes yeah. and i think you, it's a competitive market right so uh, yeah. and, and proving that impact that's probably the biggest evolution in, in the charity sector is like a real focus from funders on what is your impact you know these these kind of outputs you know we help x amount of people but how do you change their lives how do you move them towards employment or you know whatever um and and it's just in terms of that you talked about your trustees so um you've got so you're the founder but you're also you're now employed um you've got these trustees yes. they arrive into your charity you, you know you i know you're going down you're recruiting by based on skills now aren't you so it started as friends to get it over the line at the beginning and now it's skills based yeah. so you know legal marketing fundraising business yeah. um how how does cow to keep a lid on her hey this is my charity i set this charity how do, how does how how does the, how does the founder syndrome hit calder <laughs> that is such a timely question because we've actually had an issue this week where where that's sort of very very relevant um do you know what it is really difficult because you've got a board of trustees sat around a table that are looking at it from a business perspective really you know when, and you've got me sat around that same table that's looking at it from a heart and passion side of things and um, you know, sometimes they're making decisions that I don't think is um, relevant to the charity on the ground. But I think the answer to that is a mutual respect. Um, you know, I respect that they have the charity's best interests at heart and they respect that, that I have a huge amount of heart and passion behind the charity. And so it's kind of a, a bit of a compromise, really, in that there's some things that we just have to do to stay in line with charity commission guard guidelines and to make sure we are being appropriate in every single way and um, there's some things where they can see the heart and passion behind it um and so we'll listen to me and and respect my opinion um so i think i think that mutual respect and compromise yeah. would, would be the answer yeah. to, to that um, and I'm lucky to have a very good board um, that we have a great relationship with. And I think there is that mutual respect and, and that makes a big difference. Yeah, good. No, that's, that's, um, I mean, it's, I think it's a good tension to have. I mean, I think the biggest challenge for charities is, is actually, and, and ones like yourself, where you've got a 
you know you've, you're a really strong part of it is to it's it's just always focus on helping helping people help themselves and empowering people rather than solving yeah. problems for them uh, because ultimately that's not doing anyone any favors um and i know Absolutely. i know what all of what you're doing is about uh helping people help themselves um what do, what do you see I, I, two questions i guess we'll, we'll head towards closing but really around um where where do you see the charity going do you, do you think it's gonna just so how many people are you helping each year what, what are the numbers at the moment um, roughly um, about 150. So we have a maximum of 16 on each programme. Um, and, yeah, the, the plan this year was to have nine programmes running. Yeah. Um, being honest with you, it, it was we got to a bit of a junction last year where it was a case of we had to make a decision. Do we go bigger and it becomes less personal, but we reach more people? Or do we say stay smaller um, and we still keep it very personal. And I knew without having to think too hard about it where I wanted to go, because I think what makes the real difference is that it's very personal and that we know everyone as an individual and every individual matters rather than it them just becoming numbers. Um, so we really made a decision that we would we wouldn't go bigger than nine programmes. Um, but we would develop more with the ongoing development of the people that come through the programme. So this year we introduced um, a level two walking and climbing programme in Scotland, um, which was for people who'd already been through a five day programme. And it was sort of the next level of responsibility and challenge and development. Um, and we also introduced a level three wilderness canoeing expedition in Sweden. Um, but again, an increased level of responsibility. So the participants involved had to set up a committee. Um, they had a treasurer, a secretary, a PR manager, um, and they basically had to organise and coordinate the whole thing. So um, a lot more emphasis on them taking responsibility and ownership, which I think is, um, you know, I've learned from my own journey one thing isn't often enough you know you need the next step and the next step and the next step until you kind of find the answers you need so I knew I didn't want it to stop at just the five-day programs I wanted it there to be the opportunity for the next step to happen yeah. so um, we're, we're focusing as far as development goes that's what we're focusing on now as far as development on the charity which I think is a great step forward and that that goes back I mean that's that burden right so you know, so one thing is the fundraising income burden, but actually, um, like, for example, I know of a charity uh, in Guatemala and they, they helped save, set up a primary school, but then realised actually upper school wasn't anything to play by. So they had to then form an upper school and then it was high school and then, then it was university places. Yeah. And then you're like, how's bells? I just wanted to help some kids at primary school. Um, and I mean, this is going to be, I, I'm guessing for you, um, this is going to be probably a, a lot, you, you'll continue this for life, won't you? This, um, it, you might yeah, not stay absolutely. employed, but yeah, yeah, it's, you've. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what's so brilliant about it. You can be dynamic and you can be constantly coming up with new ideas and, you know, you try some things and they don't work. So you go, okay, we won't do that again. 
and then you try something else and it does work and you go okay that was really cool let's keep doing that you know um and that's what so it keeps me so energized and motivated by it because you can constantly be thinking of okay what next what can we do next what can we try what might work what else can we do which is what's so awesome about it fantastic okay so just quickly so how if someone's listening and they want to donate how would how do they or find out more about take part and you know sign up how how do they how do they do that um yeah best way is to go to the website which is climbingout.org.uk um we would love to hear from anyone who would like to apply for a for a place on a program you know one of our biggest challenges is actually filling places um because of the nature of the people we support quite often they don't have the confidence to to get in touch so we're always looking for sort of new links new referrals um and to hear from anyone that would be keen to take part um but obviously as we've already said mark if the money isn't in the bank account the programs don't run so we're always keen to hear from anyone who would like to donate as well right. which would be amazing and they could do that but, yeah they could do that through the website can they yeah. yes and and all my contact details are on there as well if anyone wants to get in touch right. big thank you for joining tonight's episode i really enjoyed speaking to calder great person and um don't forget to hit subscribe if you can leave a review on apple Podcasts. if that's what you're listening through please do and also tell friends family colleagues really trying to grow our audience and help our sector help inspire people who want to start up charities or initiatives or projects are going to make a difference in the world Um, my aim is to grow our community and um, looking forward to doing that enjoy have a good evening bye-bye thanks for listening to purposely podcast i hope you like what you're hearing please subscribe and leave a review Thank you.